You're listening to the ASI Podcast. ASI stands for Attitudes of Sexual Integrity. What does that mean? <laughs> Here we go. Drop the virtual needle on a little bumper music by Daughtry. Here you go. The needs on a path. And what do we want, right? What I want and what I need is... Dot, dot, dot. What I want Yes, what I want, what I need. It's funny how the lyrics to that song can sound theological <laughs> if you choose to go in that route. Um, reminds me of a therapist I had, uh, Susan, who talked about she had us in a, a couple's thing for a little while, and she uh, she said something familiar and something scary, right? Like... My wife knows what she wants, you know, and and Russ, you're finally becoming that. And yeah, man, just since 2005, we've had, you know, different marriage counselors, um, pastors from from them to actual, you know, having an actual therapist, mental health professional, <laughs> right? Um, but a lot of people have told me, more than one counselor. Russ, you're you're so blessed to have a woman who tells you what she wants. <laughs> I'm like, really? I, I had no idea. But it's, it's true. You know, my wife isn't, uh, she doesn't hide stuff. She lives in her truth, which is I love about her. Um, but yeah, so our counselor, you know, looking at my wife says, the guy that she wanted to marry, right? Like the vulnerable person underneath it all. That guy. The part of me that can feel safe enough to start showing her my insides. That guy is who I was becoming. That's the layers, you know, the heart of me my wife fell in love with. But I had so many different mechanisms, right? I had another counselor years ago who asked, "What, Russ, what's with all the, the scamming, right? The scamming and the lying and the kind of tough guy rock and roll. This is just me doing what I got to do to survive persona, right? What's that about? What is it in my ego, right, in my makeup that... Uh, was so, you know, just running all these different survival mechanisms in order to keep myself afloat emotionally, um, looking back. And over the time of doing this podcast, you know, bits and pieces of myself were being ripped off and exposed. And as far as actions in one's life being problematic, my big one was sex. 
And that was after the sobriety, you know, after getting off the hard drugs and not drinking myself unconscious. And that stuff started me on the path, the yellow brick road. I named the show Attitudes of Sexual Integrity because, much like the plot of the book and the film The Wizard of Oz, um, the beautiful contradiction that we all tend to walk through on this journey of life reminds me of, of this bumper right here. In this life of reaches, sitting here alone, by the way, I tried to say I'd be there for you. Love, hate, sex, pain, God smack. Oh, and by the way, this is season seven, episode number 10. ASI247.org, by the way, is the website for this here podcast. I would like to thank Carlton, Glenn, Seth S., not to be confused with Seth Taylor, my friend Seth Taylor, uh, My Pilgrimage, Feels Like Redemption, guy that wrote that book, um... Seth S. is a co-producer of the ASI podcast. Thank you a bunch, all co-producers, for helping make this show even possible. Got an email from a listener, Bill, uh, who had an encounter with uh, my sponsor, BetterHelp.com, or past sponsor. They're no longer on the website now. I'm not even sure what's going on with that. Like They told me to take the links down after they had already paid me uh, to put them up. I don't know if they're going through rebranding or what's going on. They may want to um, sponsor again. I'm, I'm not sure what's going on with that, with, with all of that at BetterHelp. Um, but he had a kind of a negative experience with BetterHelp and somebody had canceled. He had a thing set up. Um, and that's something I wanted to encourage you listening that this is it's going to be messy and not all counselors and therapists are going to be right for you. You know, um, just don't give up. All right. It's, it's part of our speaking of survival mechanisms that may need to be exposed. And that was one for me, you know, like this is difficult and I don't know about these people. Right. Um, and you start to learn how you're going to mesh with getting help. And I encourage anybody that's listening to this show, if you're struggling with sexually compulsive behavior, man, seeing a therapist or a counselor is going to be very beneficial for you. But I will throw a but in there, okay? Um, you're going to have to work at it. And the first person you see may not be um, that helpful. And you also have to discern between 
spending your money and time with someone who may not be helping you. And as a guy who knows a lot of therapists who who also may be listening and thinking, yeah, but Russ, the work, right? Because a lot of therapists will say they're going to give you work to do. There is work, emotional work to do when you enter into counseling and therapy. And if you've listened to the show over the years, you know I'm kind of a philosophy, theology kind of geek, you know. And one of the most beautiful definitions of theology was the exploration or the examination um, or the journey of exploring beauty and truth. Well, theology's about religion, Russ. You know, I'm not a big fan. I'll be honest. Do I? I'm a spiritual guy. I got a deep thread of spirituality in what I talk about and, and how I live my life. But yeah, not a big fan of religion. Um, you could we could have a conversation about that if you like, Russ at asi two four seven dot org. But you know, again, what does it mean to keep pressing into beauty and truth? My wife got me this little sign for Father's Day that says, "Life may not be perfect, but parts of it are pretty awesome." And I love that. It kind of goes with that same thread or quest, so to speak, of journeying for seeking more beauty and truth. And so if you've hit a roadblock with your counselor or therapist, or if you're having a hard time connecting, um, just realize that pressing forward into that is part of the journey, all right? What do you want? This is something I had to come to terms with, all right? All of my wisdom and all of my, you know, I've got this figured out. Like, I was a very, you know, uh, I had a big ego, right? Just to say that. I'm like, you know what? I got this. Talking about some of my damage and stuff. Like, I'm not, I'm not a victim. Like, don't call me a victim. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a man. I'm a freaking man. And I, I had a truck, you know, and I can do things and I've got this. And I had that very, you know, kind of take charge, take control kind of attitude. Yet in the shadows, I was coming apart, um, going off, you know, angry, uh, depression, um, suicidal thoughts. These were still going on in me despite all of my you know, kind of bravado and feeling like I have things figured out when I didn't. It was the should having things figured out that I was more attached to at this part of my journey. And so, you know, something comes up in your way. So you have to be more of a, like a honing missile when it comes to seeking beauty and truth, I believe than a, you know, just a projectile aiming, I want that, right? Because, again, we get into the, the wants and needs of life. What do you want? Do you want to have a more well-rounded life? Um, what does that mean? What, what are you going to have to start taking action on? And I believe that therapy is a, a really good one. And so I had to... 
have grace for therapists. You know, sometimes some therapists, a lot of people enter into this field. Like it's one of the, I've had a lot of therapists and counselors and people in the helping arts on this podcast over the years. And one of the first thing I asked them is, you know, how messed up are you that you do this <laughs> for money now? Right. And I laugh, but it, it's true. Like, it's a good question. Like, Everyone who's good, a good therapist has got some kind of damage. And I'll be honest with you, man. I don't trust people that don't have some kind of baggage, right? Like the person who has some baggage, they've who who's been through some stuff. The person who once they get to know you, you know, they'll share with you that they've been through some stuff. That's the kind of person I want in my corner. The person who's had a pretty rosy life and grew up, you know, and in, I don't know, white suburban America and went to a, a private, you know, well-rounded Christian school and has a, you know, a, a college scholarship and a trust fund. Like, I have a hard time relating to all of that, right? Had good emotional support growing up. Like, I, what? I, I can't relate. That person would probably not make a very good therapist. So realize that, that if you're going to seek counseling and therapy, the people you're seeking it from, hopefully they've done a lot of work. You know, that's what I love about here in Seattle. We have the Seattle School of Psychology and Theology, and they have these uh, counseling programs. Or if you want to be a counselor or a therapist that graduates from that school, you're in therapy, you know, two, three times a week. You're, you know, in a group setting with other people um, at least once a week. And you do this work as you're learning how to help other people, right? Like, how can you expect other people to do the work if you haven't done the work, right? That's why I think getting a mental health professional is so important, because they've actually done the work. There's a lot of pastors and youth pastors and clergy people out there who... You know, they're, they have good intentions, but they haven't done the work, you know. I'm convinced that there's a lot of pastors, you know, Bill Hybels of Willow Creek and that whole thing, you know, that there's a guy who wrote books on it and did sermons on it, and, and he just kind of talked about it. He didn't actually get in and do the work himself. He didn't become vulnerable himself which is part of the cross. You know, in Christian theology, the cross is the crux of it all. There's been a lot of talk lately of ego death and psychology and, you know, psychonaut circles. This is the imagery of it, the cross. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. I love those lyrics from that old hymn that very strong, egoic part of us doesn't want to die. Other religions, philosophies, whatever, right? They see the cross as like weakness. No, it is ultimate strength to get to this spiritual center of our being. But to get there, to seek that level of beauty and truth... See, this is some of the confusion in Christian teaching of the self, and putting the self to death. For me, I see it as integrating that childlike part of us with the adult spirit 
that's walking out this life on a day-to-day basis, you know. And we all have a childlike and a childishness about us, right? Much like children, we're very susceptible emotionally to being hungry, isolated, um, tired, sleep deprivation, right? This is an example of that, part of us. And so the ego can get very childish and throw a tantrum. And we learn a lot of these things growing up, how we emotionally relate. I think our emotional state in most cases is, is very childlike. It's, it's not fully developed, right? Um, this is not something that's taught or understood or clarified in a lot of Christian teaching. Right, the, the, I talked about in the beginning of the show this book, um, Every Man's Battle. And then there was Every Woman's Battle. Um, my friend Seth and David talk about that book a little bit. You know, like there's just, there's not a whole lot of discernment between what your ego is doing, even in the religious acts of it all, or trying to achieve some kind of sexual purity by way of repression. You know, um, again, not to say that sexual repression is just, you know, let's just go out and do whatever. No, that's not what, you know, that's what not, that's not what not being repressed means. Being repressed is, is closing that part of yourself up and it can be a very egoic attitude and it's not surrendering to the spirit. It's more like holding back a sneeze or something over time. You're just repressing all of your sexual energy and needs. And there's a part of us that really loves to shame ourselves, that would really love to see us break that and would love to have a huge slam rus for slipping party. And again, we get into wants and needs uh, and that's something you'll never, I, I've never talked about on this show, slips. Like you're, you're not going to have, uh, you've listened to the show a long time, I'm not going to use slips as a, as a thing. Like I don't, I don't see that as a thing really. I slipped. I've said in the show for years, if you want to look at porn, you're going to look at porn. And what does it mean to change your want-tos? That's a, a huge part of the approach um, of, of this, at least of me and how I've done this. And listen, there's mostly men out there who are in either Christian groups or SA kind of 12 step groups. And they're continually talking about the slips week in, week out, how to slip, you know, well, what were you looking at? What was your thought life? What were you tempted by it? And they do this for years without any progress or feeling free. I laugh. It's sad. But I, I'm, I'm after the raw nerve endings of dysfunction down in there that, that you know, are feeding this unwanted sexual behavior. Again, that's why we call it sexual addiction, right? And I know that it's not a popular. There's a lot of people that want to argue with that. I've talked about it, right? Call it intimacy disorder and not sexual addiction. Yes, those are symptoms, and these are, again, part of the layers. But the addiction part is, yeah, it's your body taking control of your being. When you keep doing something you don't want to keep doing, that is addiction. That's a bad habit. Let's... Let's be honest about that. 
But you also have to be honest about being a sexual creature with sexual needs as well. And what that looks like in a relationship, in the light of, you know, again, (laughs) pursuing, walking down the path of beauty and truth. And I went seven years of doing this podcast, um, some, some might call sexually pure, okay, to use those words, even though I never use those words. Um, for seven years, I, I never used porn, and I, I didn't even masturbate, all right, uh, uh, of doing this show. And... I, you know, my wife and I, we had sex when we had sex. And then I started, you know, I still had all these different defense mechanisms and also mechanisms that helped me get me what I wanted. So I would, you know, repress some of my own feelings and having honest conversations because, it was uh it was almost date night and i might get lucky if i don't bring this up and start a whole thing right um peter rollins who's a philosopher and a theologian said that uh actions are the eruption of a truth that we cannot or do not speak see while I could feel good about myself and even my perceived relationship with God based on the things I believed and the theology I held on to, you know, like I was cool. God and I were cool because I was only having orgasms in my wife. And I'm thinking out loud, this is not necessarily me at the time, but there's there's folks, I think, entering into this, if you're religious or you came up in a Christian upbringing and that's the tradition you grew up in, you know, you start to see sexuality like that. Like, if I can just have my orgasms in my wife's vagina, if you're a man, or, you know, my husband using his penis is the only way I... I right like these this is sexual purity and we coined that phrase and you know we take a something that was written in scripture 2000 years ago we bring it up to you know the 21st century and we we feel like this is being obedient to God and for those of you who aren't religious for you it's like this is how I stay okay right Again, pursuing beauty and truth. If you're seeing that as kind of a draw of of your life and how you want to live as a person, um, how I stay okay is is having sex on a regular basis. And if that means that I stuff some of these parts of myself, these tender parts of myself, then so be it. Is that how you define... Purity, to use that word, it, it, the the word purity comes to mind, even though it's it's not necessarily theological when you think about it in that not muddied up kind of way. I want my life to get to where I'm have my needs filled, and everything's good, and no one gets upset, <laughs> right? Meanwhile, those delicate bits and pieces of ourselves are are still being pushed aside. I'm sitting in a chair, by the way. If you hear that creaking in the background, that's me wiggling around in the chair because I'm using my hands as I'm doing this. I'm getting to this part where I 
want to articulate this in the best way possible. I'm at a loss for words. I don't have the greatest vocabulary. I'm not the greatest speaker. Doing my best over here. Um, Okay, so back to The Wizard of Oz, right? 1939 film um, in Technicolor. It was cutting-edge technology in 1939, making a color motion picture. And the reason I wanted to use this as an illustration for this episode is that it is a story of a journey, and even a journey of healing, one could say, right? You have the positive antagonist, which is Dorothy in the story, who lands in this place and meets other cohorts along the way. She meets a scarecrow who needs, right, the need and the want of the story. He needs a brain. Ain't got a brain, the scarecrow. Uh, The tin woodsman who desires a heart and the cowardly lion um, who needs courage. And Dorothy, again, using this word positive anxiety, Antagonist, something that uh, Peter Rollins brought up, is, you know, she's brings hope, you know. Hey, there is a place where we can find some healing for what ails you, a place to find that thing you need or are lacking. Let's, let's go on this journey together. And I know I've used this metaphor in the past, but hopefully updating it to help you understand, like the... If you've seen the film, right? Spoiler alert: um, the wizard, the Wizard of Oz, who they're they're going to get these things, right? The the character who's going to fill their lack um, is a fraud, right? They find him working levers behind some big curtain, and he's just as messed up as everyone else. Which is a great analogy for religion and even for seeking therapy right? The counselors. Some people have done more work than others. Um, It reminds me of this uh, piece of scripture from, again, this uh, book of the Bible. There's some great wisdom in there. And James uh, 1, 4, um, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be complete and lacking in nothing. Um, and then the next verse at five is, if anybody lacks wisdom, let them ask God who gives generously without reproach, and it will be given him or her. That yes, we're on a journey with our needs and wants, but underneath it all, lack is mostly a liar. The understanding of faith, again, is the opposite of certainty. Certainty blocks the exploration of truth, right? When you get fearful, when the Wizard of Oz tells you things like, don't follow that person, you know, they're a heretic, or they're too religious, right? (laughs) Spiritual woo-woo stuff, if you're an academic. For example, um... A lot of the corralling of American, especially Christian thinking in my country, is going to keep people stuck. It's going to keep people, you know, addicted to porn. And and that keeps the Wizard of Oz facade funded, keeps it going. And but it's, it's not really true faith. 
because true faith is the absence of fear. Love is also the absence of that kind of fear. Authentic faith is going to push past our confirmation bias, a.k.a. certainty. And that's the interesting thing about people that are seeking help or healing or even guidance. Um, Dorothy being the antagonist of intimacy and vulnerability, right? Like she's there and then they tell her their lack, right? They're completely vulnerable to Dorothy as, you know, they go along this path. And this is what I wanted to bring to mind with you during this episode and maybe challenge you with some that, yes, you're on a journey, but on that journey, spiritually speaking, to use that word, um, you're lacking nothing. There's another scripture that comes to mind. Um, God has started a good work in you and will see it through to the end, right? Like that's, there's not a whole lot of you having to score or even obedience. Like what that word has been used again to brand and to keep people, you know, seeking after the wisdom that is in the wizard of Oz structure that they're marketing. Um, but you don't lack that, right? I saw this, uh, meme online was pretty funny and it was a bunch of, uh, folks in a cage and this woman is walking out of the cage. And as she is looking back at the cage, all the people in the cage with the door wide open are yelling heretic, right? They're going backslider, um, in colleges, this could be, you know, you don't write that paper, you know, you got to conform. There is a light that shines in the darkness and the darkness will not overtake it. For example, the idea of higher power in a recovery group, you're encouraged to do that, right? To understand that there is a power greater than you are. And for some of you, what if it's the universe? The universe is that bigger than you are? Just the idea that there is something greater beyond your ability to reason things out and even your actions, right? There is a light in the darkness and the darkness will not envelop that light. The light will continue to shine. Uh, For me, obedience is just being able to continue that light shining in my life. I want to bring more light to the world. You know, this has radically changed my prayer life. Um, I pray with a lot less words now because there's that scripture. God knows what you want before you even ask, right? Um, That can change the dynamic of a relationship with the divine if you let it. My point is that a lot of this is less about lack. You know, a porn addiction is another great example of this. Unidentified lack, like the tin man needing a heart or the straw person needing a brain you know this dorothy coming up on them going what what is that have feeling that pull right um you're all alone feeling the the urge or whatever right whether it's feelings of loneliness or isolation you know all of a sudden it's we're off to see the wizard the wonderful wizard of Pornhub, right you know what what is that call it's it's going down a path 
to get to the the Wizard of Oz, and, and it doesn't. It, we know that it doesn't satisfy. Again, that's the that's the lie. But it, it it's it feels like something, I suppose, right? That was a big part of my story, you know. Feeling something was better than feeling nothing. So why did you look at porn again, Russ? In 2013, I was going through more stuff, and I didn't have the feeling of freedom, to use those words. Um, You know, seeking after healing and beauty and truth, going through that means not just not looking at porn. Well, if you don't look at porn anymore, everything's going to be fine and okay. You won't suffer from depression and all these other things. No, that's, that's not true. I had more work to do. And the shame that would eat at me needed to be addressed. And so that was part of, you know, my... It's funny, like relapse, to use those words. I don't think that word's incredibly helpful either. Um, When it comes to the behavior, sure. You want to call it a relapse? Fine. But you want to address the feelings that that kind of a word can stir up in you? That's a whole nother journey. And speaking of journey, the guy that sexually abused me, his voice didn't go away when I stopped looking at porn. All right? If that makes sense. Um... There's an example from uh, my my life as a, a drug addict, and you know, been through those recovery groups. I had a friend who got sober and still suffered from depression. You know, he would keep going to groups and keep talking about his you know slips every so often, and eventually the man took his life because he didn't value himself enough to address the the shame monster that was using guilt to eat at him from the inside out. And that's not freedom. That's not even being alive anymore. Addressing the shame that you feel after a relapse can open up a whole world of new things that you can heal from. And feel a lot freer about. So yeah, I'm not going to use them. Throw out that word relapse. I don't think it's important. I don't think it's pertinent to my story. Sorry, that offends twelve step people. But that's a whole nother podcast. You know, being honest about our language. Um, actually, Seth and David did a podcast on that. But language is incredibly important being honest about you know what you're struggling with with people who are safe and that you trust yeah that's important but yeah some of these words you just you know you got to take it you know you're going to get beat for it but you go into the group and you oh, relapsed like ugh, some of that can be toxic not helpful whatsoever again that's why Seth and David's book title was so brilliant feels like redemption freedom should be something that we feel our our value as a person is a felt thing you know uh, cognitive dissonance is the is the feeling it really is the feeling between two conflicting thoughts confirmation bias is the feeling that I know the truth and I'm not going to budge and I will not explore outside of this little safe zone that these people that I know have created for me. 
And my question is, is that dominant feeling bringing freedom, the feeling of redemption? And that's a big challenge. Are you going to let the feeling of confirmation bias overrule the feeling that you may get from freedom on this journey? Um, the truth is that a lot of this is are roadblocks that are set up to keep you from being vulnerable. And there is no change without vulnerability. This is the productive antagonism as the characters encounter Dorothy on the yellow brick road. Brene Brown um, said that the measuring stick of shame and guilt is self-talk and how we talk about ourselves. The self-talk of healthy guilt would say, you know, I wasn't thinking, I wasn't present, I made a mistake, I learned from my mistakes. The self-talk of shame is I am an idiot. I am a loser. I am a selfish, horrible person. I am a fuck-up. That's the self-talk of shame. Shame turns in on itself. Martin Luther said that that was his definition of sin, is, is the self turning in on the self. Guilt says, I did something bad. Shame says, I am bad. When people change their self-talk via honesty, empathy, vulnerability, and they believe that, their lives change, all right? Um, vulnerability is a willingness to show up when we can't control the outcome, Brene Brown said. Um, that's a hard thing to do. Sharing your personal frustrations can be scary. We've all fallen victim to the idea that we're supposed to be comfortable all the time, she added. So I'll challenge you with that as well. Instead of trying to outsmart vulnerability, you know, making things all certain, black and white, good and bad, I want you to think about the symptom that has you on this journey. All right? If you're listening to the show, it's more than likely, you know, sexually compulsive behavior. That's the symptom. Again, Peter Rowland's um, talking about the philosopher Lacan and his some of his writing on the the contradiction um the word symptom is french lacan was a french philosopher uh he was also an atheist that was fascinated by spiritual language which i find fascinating as well um but lacan his uh, understanding of the contradiction in all of us was based in this word symptom now, in French, that word can be broken down. The, so, symptom, if you say symptom, symptom in, in French, it means holy man or like a clergy person. And in Matthew 25, it's recorded that Jesus refers to himself as the symptom. When he says, you know, when I was, when I was hungry, you, you gave me something to eat. When I was naked, you, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you came to visit me, you know, and, and, the, and the disciples are scratching their heads going, when were you in prison? Like, I, I, we, I don't understand, <laughs> right? You weren't in prison. Um, when did we feed you? What do you mean? 
Jesus embodying, right, lack and need, you know, this idea that Christians are supposed to be the light of the world. I love that. Like, I want to take the word back, Christian, because even the fact that you're here and realizing the symptom, right, on this journey, being a kind of floodlight that throws onto the things in the darkness this beautiful array of light. I heard, you know, here in the COVID-19 time, they were talking about these cloth masks and how, yeah, you breathe in that thing all day, you're going to get germs in it because it gets moisture and stuff. The best disinfectant is putting it on the dashboard in the sunlight for just a few hours. It'll kill all of the infection. Like, this is the light. This is what happens when the light is brought in. But when we keep things in the dark and we keep thinking in black and whites and we pull back our vulnerability because we don't want to be, you know, extradited from our feeling like we fit in or belong... You know, you may have to find a new tribe. You start walking in the light like that. When I was at Mars Hill Church in Seattle, which no longer exists, by the way, if you're listening to the old shows, um, there's a lot of Calvinism and there was a lot of, you know, guilt and a lot of self-loathing. And over time, I started to realize that, especially being in groups where people are learning and healing and growing, um, I have a hard time trusting people who don't like themselves, right? You don't like yourself or love yourself even. Where are you going to pull the energy to love others? I spent time over the years with a lot of Christian fakers who, you know, I don't need or want anything. I just need the Lord, you know. And how do you be vulnerable with someone like that? You know, I think it's great when churches and charity groups go out and feed the poor, you know, and and fill the needs of the least of these so to speak. I've done some of that work myself. But it's this is also realizing, again, in this episode, being on this journey, on this path, that you are also the least of these, right? That's what Jesus was talking about. That's what realizing being on the journey is all about. Even when outside circumstances say differently on the inside, when you can say your cup runneth over, you feel that, man. Again, Brene Brown says, um, trust is choosing to take something important to you and make it vulnerable to the actions of someone else. Distrust is what I have shared with you that's important to me is not safe with you. This is the path, man. This is getting into it. This is a lot more. Be mindful of this stuff will change a lot more in you than putting some passcode lock on your laptop or, you know, one of these apps keep you from going to porn sites. Like, this is the stuff that has you start syncing up with your body and your feelings and your heart and how you do trust and distrust and nakedness and vulnerability and openness. And listen, I'm a bit of a comfort junkie, too. But I'm telling you, getting out of that comfort zone and walking this path, 
Because I know I've been there, man. I've walked this, and it is difficult. It is hard. It'd be the hardest thing I've ever done. But it is beautiful to walk in light and truth. And if you're still listening up to this point, man, I just have so much respect and and uh, I love you guys. I really do. I ended the show like that for a while. I don't want it to sound insincere. I really love the fact that you're on this journey and anything I could say to help encourage that, man, I want to keep doing that. All right. Cause I do respect and I have the huge admiration for you folks. And hopefully that all makes sense here in this episode is something that has been on my heart since I heard, uh, Mr. Rollins talking about, um, that idea of Jesus and the symptom and, the floodlight that is truth over certainty.